Hello, my name is Nicholas Ward, and this is Historical Hysteria, the only podcast hosted by me, Nick. Well, except for my other show. Today, I am asking the bold question, does Ukraine even exist? Spoiler alert, yes it does. To many in the West, the recent announcement by President Vladimir Putin that Ukraine isn't a real country came as something of a shock. On February 21st, two days ago as of publishing this episode, President of Russia Vladimir Putin gave a long, rambling speech claiming Ukraine was invented by the Bolsheviks, saying, quote, Ukraine never had a tradition of genuine statehood, and since time immemorial, the people living in the southwest of what has historically been Russian land have called themselves Russians. This was the case before the 17th century, when a portion of this territory rejoined the Russian state, and after. So I will start with the fact that modern Ukraine was entirely created by Russia, or to be more precise, by Bolshevik communist Russia. End quote. This revelation that Ukraine was a state invented by the Bolsheviks might come as a surprise, though it shouldn't have given Putin gave a very similar speech last year, describing Ukraine and Russia as, quote, parts of what is essentially the same historical and spiritual space. So this raises the question, why? No other post-Soviet states deal with the same kind of Russian propaganda. Russia is happy to acknowledge that all of its former imperial states are former imperial states. So what makes Ukraine special? To anyone familiar with Russian and Soviet nationalist culture, this would be old news. Like, really old news. Because this is not some brand new big brain four-dimensional chess move, but rather the repetition of a piece of propaganda between 400 and 1000 years old. Now normally I deal with Anglophone myths in this show, but today we are taking a quick Cyrillic lesson and cutting into the forest of a Russophone myth, which has, as of recording, suddenly become very, very real. In the Russian popular mythos, Ukraine is not a former imperial possession, like say Estonia or Georgia, but rather Russia and Ukraine are two parts of the same whole. The first time I came across this myth was in a smoke-filled bar in Almaty where a drunk Kazakh confidently told me that Ukraine does not really exist. That the word Ukraine comes from the word Ukraina, meaning border region, because Ukraine was just the border region of the Kievan Rus, which is today Russia. Therefore, Ukraine and Russia are two inalienable parts of the same whole. They belong together. Ukrainian nationalism, he informed me, was invented by the Germans in 1917. This took me into a strange parallel history course which teaches the history of Ukraine as simply being part of Russia. This story has been told and retold, with the villains of Ukrainian nationalism being the Germans in World War I, the Communists in 1917, and even Polish nobles in the 18th century, and that prior to that, there had been no division between Russians and Ukrainians, who are definitely one and the same people. This story is so popular among Russian nationalists that, that it has now found its way into the presidency, and is the official policy of the Russian Federation. Something which makes the current nation of Ukraine very, very nervous. So who are the Ukrainians? Who are the Russians? Are they the same people? And what on earth was the Kievan Rus? Well, this requires a bit of a story. Long before there was any concept of Russia or Russians, Eastern Europe was a vast and undeveloped hinterland on the edge of the Roman Empire. It was a large and diverse area of plains and rivers, home to great nomadic nations as well as small tribes and cities, though there is little recorded history during this period. 
Following the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, the East thrived. The city of Kiev, which had been founded in 483 AD on the banks of the Dnieper River, grew rich by controlling the passing trade that flowed north to south towards Constantinople. In the north, the city of Novgorod held a similar position on the Volkhov River. Though separated by 1,000 kilometres, these two Slavic cities became one another's primary trade partners, and their fates would become largely intertwined. In 862 AD, the city of Novgorod was either seized or given to Prince Rurik of Ladoga. Rurik's son, Prince Oleg of Novgorod, would then conquer along these important river trade routes all the way down to Kiev, where he would move his capital because of its strategic importance, founding the Federation of the Kievan Rus. It is from this empire we get the word Rus and eventually the concept of the Russians. So the Rus is just the name for the Slavic people of Eastern Europe, got it. Except, well, if you're wondering that about the names of Rurik and Oleg, and you think that they sound awfully Scandinavian, well, things get a bit controversial here. Who the Rus were is a matter of extreme historical debate. The only record of Rurik of Ladugar says he was a Varangian, a group of Norse mercenaries and conquerors from modern-day Sweden. The Rus-Rurik dynasty spoke Norse dialects, worshipped Norse gods, and initially used Norse names, leading many historians to argue that the Rus were originally Norse settlers who then intermarried into the conquered Slavic populations, giving them the name the Rus. However, some Russian and Ukrainian nationalist historians called anti-Normanists argue that Kievan Rus arises domestically from Slavic peoples and was then conquered by the Norse. There is limited evidence for the existence of a Kievan Rus prior to the Varangian conquest, however. But this debate has become closely tied into politics and propaganda through the ages. Regardless of who is correct, Kiev under the Varangians quickly grew into one of the largest and wealthiest cities in the early Middle Ages. At its height, the Kievan Rus will encompass a vast empire through much of modern-day Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus, and Kiev will rise to be briefly one of the largest cities in the world. Though the, Kiev, though the Confederation, because of its size, was always a loose-knit empire, the Rurikid family and their allies ruled largely autonomous principalities united under the leadership of the ruler of Kiev. Unfortunately, its success did not last. The decline of the Byzantines hurt its economy, the rise of powerful Norse rivals like the Kalmar Union taxed it militarily, and the empire's lack of natural barriers and colossal distances made it easy picking for pirates and nomads. Central authority collapses and the cities of Novgorod and Kiev, though still officially ruled by, though still ruled by Rurikid princes, become independent city-states. Novgorod becomes a republic, stripping away almost all of the Rurikid family's power in the region. Then, in 1240... The Mongols arrive. Though the Kievan Rus had been fractured for some time, the Mongol invasion is the nail in its coffin and the empire dissolves. Kiev is sacked and the remaining principalities swear fealty to the Mongol Golden Horde. On the very fringes of Europe, the Rurikid princes are absorbed into the Mongol Empire. The mighty city of Kiev will briefly recover before being sacked again by the Tatars, conquered by the Lithuanians, sacked by the Khazars, then conquered again by the Lithuanians. Novgorod will meanwhile stay safe, though it will pay tribute to the Mongols, it is far enough away from the Khanate that it retains independence. Following the destruction of Kiev, all the Rus principalities excepting Novgorod are either destroyed or turned into client states of the Mongol Khanate. Kiev, its territories and the Rurikid dynasty are now bit players in the struggle between Lithuania, Poland, Novgorod and the Mongol Khans. The mighty Kievan Rus is gone. Its last remnant, the Republic of Novgorod, and the Rurikid dynasty all but destroyed. Except 
for one tiny principality. Far, far away, perched on the edge of the Russian steppes, in a forgotten corner of the former empire, is a tiny and inconsequential town called Muscovy. First mentioned in the 12th century AD, its Rurikid rulers are the minor sons of minor sons. Its prince surrenders to the Mongols and swears fealty to the Khan, turning Moscow into the far western edge of the Mongol Empire. The Mongols are driven west out of much of Eastern Europe, and in this new paradigm, Moscow becomes the go-between for the nomads and the rest of Europe. With Kiev all but gone, Novgorod becomes the city in Eastern Europe. Unfortunately for Novgorod, their population quickly outstrips their ability to produce food, and they begin trading for food with the tiny and seemingly inconsequential Muscovites. Surely, handing over control of their food production to somebody else would not come to bite them in the arse. By the 15th century, the now Grand Duke of Muscovy had, thanks to its position as chief lickspittle of the Khanate, become a power of its own. Then in 1483, Ivan III, Grand Duke of Muscovy, makes an odd claim. He claims to be the rightful ruler of the Empire of the Kievan Rus. He then seizes and sacks Novgorod. His son Ivan IV will go a step further at the age of 16. He will be declared not Grand Duke or Prince like his ancestors, but as Tsar of all the Rus. Ivan will overthrow the Kazan Khanate, sack Novgorod a second time, and Leroy Jenkins himself into a war with everyone who holds pieces of the former Kievan Rus which at this point includes the empires of Holy Rome, Lithuania, Sweden, Poland, and the Crimean Khanate, who are allied with the Ottoman Empire. And the Muscovites lose heart. They are forced to capitulate, losing huge swaths of territory, and Moscow is looted and burned. Ivan IV, the first Tsar of Russia, dies, remembered by some as a brutal madman, and by others as a great unifier. He has set a precedent and founded the Empire of Russia and at its core is a holy mission to reunify the lands of the Kievan Rus, whether they want to be unified or not. And with Novgorod conquered, this leaves only Kiev as the great spiritual homeland of this empire, waiting for an emperor who is worthy to, huge air quotes here, reclaim her. Meanwhile, the Rurikid dynasty, which Ivan had used as legal justification for his broad claims over the Kievan Rus' previous lands, ends with his son, who died childless at the age of 40. This leads to the time of troubles and is as fascinating as it is irrelevant to what we are talking about. So let's quickly head back to Ukraine. What are the Ukrainians doing during all of this? Well, Lithuania's control over Ukraine had always been fractious, so the Ukrainians are kind of just doing their own thing. The Ukrainian Cossacks who live east of Kiev are largely independent within the empire, maintaining an uneasy alliance with the Lithuanians and later the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Meanwhile, the city of Kiev slowly regains its position as a great city. The Lithuanians grant it a high level of autonomy, and it becomes a centre for commerce, education, and for the Orthodox Church, which maintains a powerful position in the region, despite the Catholic rulers of Poland and Lithuania's best efforts. It also becomes a centre for European Jews, as the city gives Jews largely equal rights. Things go well for Ukraine, Kiev, and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth until the 17th century when the Commonwealth, in what is one of history's greatest own goals, assembles a massive army of Ukrainian Cossacks to seize Constantinople. However, changing its mind, this results in a massive Cossack uprising which will pretty much destroy the Commonwealth. The Cossacks will ally with the Russians, resulting in three decades of on-and-off-again wars. 
that result in the loss of eastern Ukraine, Belarus, and the city of Kiev to the Russian Empire. Now, for the Russians, this is a moment of destiny, a century in the making. Kiev and the Kievan Rus have been the centerpiece of imperial propaganda for the last 200 years. Ivan III and IV had set the empire on a holy mission to re-establish the Kievan Rus, and here finally the city of Kiev, the heart of the empire, was in their hands. This was to them like the reconquest of Rome by the Byzantine Empire Justinian, a moment of destiny, a moment of huge import for them, for their empire, for all the Rus people. Finally unified under the Tsar, finally they were truly the Tsardom of Russia. The Ukrainian Cossacks as a reward are allowed to operate as an autonomous region and Kiev is given a special autonomous status within the empire. It is set to be the crown jewel of the new empire. We can imagine the Russians resplendent in their armour marching through the gates of Kiev declaring loudly that the Rus was once more whole and to watch in utter confusion as the people of Kiev didn't understand what they were saying because they did not speak Russian. Kiev had now been under 400 years of occupation by the Mongols, Crimean Tatars, Lithuanians, and Poles. The primary lingua franca of Kiev by the 17th century is Polish. The most spoken language is Ukrainian, at this point sometimes called Little Russian, but which is completely a separate language to that of Russian, having Polish, Lithuanian, and even Turkish influences on it. Culturally, the city is a multi-ethnic and cultural cross between Orthodox and Catholic, with a broad mix of Polish, Lithuanian, Yiddish, Slavic, Ukrainian, and even some elements of Tatar and Turkish culture. I wonder what happens when a multicultural city is absorbed into an aggressive, ultra-nationalistic, totalitarian state. For the Russians, this must be a moment of shock. 300 years of propaganda had spread this myth of one unified Rus people, and the Ukrainians not only speak a different language, but are an entirely alien culture shaped by centuries of difference and distance to their Moscovite cousins. And though the Russians will never admit to this, their culture has also changed from the days of the Kievan Rus. Though the Russians will call their culture Big Russia and act as though it is the real culture of the Rus people, the culture of Moscow is not some pure derivation of the Kievan Rus. Moscow had been ruled by the Mongols for 400 years. Its cultural evolution had been shaped hugely by Eastern influences. The culture of the Russians is as divergent from that of the Kievan Rus as the Ukrainians are. Two people separated by over a thousand kilometres for a millennia. One shaped by Eastern Europe and the Balkans, and the other by steppe nomads. To say there is a clash of cultures is to put it mildly. 300 years later, Leon Trotsky and others will argue that Russia's, that many of Russia's problems arise from its foundations in Eastern despotism. So how do these new rulers, with this sudden culture shock, finding out that their long-lost brothers in Kiev are actually nothing like them, handle this? Do they take a long-measured approach and ask, perhaps we can learn from each other? Ha ha, ha ha ha, ha ha ha. 200 years prior, the Muscovites had conquered the second city of the Kievan Rus, Novgorod. Novgorod, which was the only part of the Kievan Rus which had never been conquered, and probably the most Rus of the Rus. And how did they find their Rus brothers? Ivan III and IV dismissed them as Latinized and eventually nearly leveled the city while brutally suppressing their culture in favour of what will become known as Eastern Despotism. The term Eastern Despotism is a bit reductive, but it has a point. In that the culture the Muscovites bring west is not a Russian culture, it is as much a Mongol culture as anything else.
The Muscovites have no more or less claim to cultural Russianness than the people of Novgorod or of those of Kiev. But try explaining that to an expansionist imperial power. In 1667, when the Russians march into Kiev, they find themselves not greeted as brother liberators of the great Kievan Rus, but as yet another occupier in a foreign land with its own identity. Whether a Kievan Rus identity had ever even existed is debatable, as there is evidence that Kiev and Novgorod had never even spoken the same language. Their unity derived from a Varangian ruling class, not an inherent unified Slavic culture. Things were no better outside the cities among the Cossacks, many of whom harboured ideas of independence and had briefly attempted to set up an independent or autonomous state, however had settled for a protectorate within the Russian Empire. Now, to the Empire's credit, Kiev and the lands of eastern Ukraine were given a high level of independence. But the writing was pretty much already on the wall. For starters, the new Russian overlords, when confronted with the reality that Ukrainians had their own language and identity, had immediately taken the bold steps of plugging their ears and going, la 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 la, Ukrainian doesn't exist, la 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 la. The Russians called Ukraine Little Russia and called their language Little Russian. The city and its surrounding regions would maintain a degree of autonomy till the 18th century, but with the collapse of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Russia's policy to its little counterpart changed dramatically. Kiev would have its autonomy suspended, and a period of aggressive Russification would begin in the early 19th century. In 1804, all teaching of the Ukrainian language was banned, and over the century, magazines, schools, universities, and academics were banned, imprisoned, and exiled for anything seen as promoting a Ukrainian identity. In 1864, the Tsar's Minister of the Interior, Pyotr Valuev, in a secret decree, banned almost all public use of Ukrainian. In part, the decree reads, A separate little Russian language never existed, does not exist, and shall not exist, and their tongue, used by commoners, is nothing but Russian corrupted by the influence of Polish. As we can see, the idea in Russia of Ukrainian identity being a myth invented by foreigners far, far predates the Bolsheviks, and has long been a foundation of imperial propaganda. The heavy-handedness of the government only increased revolutionary sentiment within the province, and the 19th century saw the birth of a new Ukrainian nationalist movement. And it is here that we get the name Ukraine. Ukraine comes from the old Slavonic word Ukraina, meaning border regions, and is first used to refer to the border regions of the city of Kiev, not of Russia, and not of the Kievan Rus. Despite the roundabout claims by Russian nationalists that Ukraine is historically the border region of Russia, this just isn't true. Regardless, the term is used by the region's Cossacks who live in Kiev's Ukraina border regions of the city, and it is rediscovered by little Russian nationalists who during the 19th century, like many in Europe, are trying to find their own identities. Despite the claims of Pyotr, and today Putin, Ukrainian nationalism, by all evidence, arises locally. It arises much like nationalism had arisen elsewhere in Europe, where it had not before, not as a foreign plot, but because of numerous historical differences in culture and language. Despite Russian claims that Ukraine does not and had never existed, the empire nevertheless invests heavily in combating this imaginary problem with aggressive Russification. There is a brief pause in Russification, under Tsar Alexander II, who attempts to modernise the empire, however, following his assassination, any hope of liberalism in the empire fails. Mikhail Katkov, Russia's leading newspaper editor, wrote after the ascension of his son Alexander III, In the Russian state, there are forces at work which are hostile to the Russian people. Parasites who have insinuated themselves into its lifeblood, 
various privileged political nationalities, and so the Russian government has taken on a non-Russian character in its policies. There is little doubt that Katkov is referring to ethnic Russians here. The non-Russian characteristics he refers to are likely the liberalising efforts of Alexander II, who attempted to make Russia act slightly less like a belligerent, ultra-nationalistic empire. But this vile and violent polemic perfectly illustrates the vice that Ukraine was in inside the empire. To paraphrase Pyotr Valuev, Russians could not, would not, and would never recognise Ukraine as something different. Because the credibility of their state, of their very identity as Russians, was built on this mythical foundation of the Kievan Rus. Even while in every respect treating Ukrainians like an occupied nation, the Russians needed to sell this idea of a unified Russia, a unified Rus. And Ukraine was central to that. Kiev was central to that. In the 20th century, Ukraine gets its first taste of independence after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk gives it a level of nationhood. However, the Germans have little interest in nation-building, and following the war, a three-way civil war tears the young nation apart. This gives rise to the myth that the Germans invent Ukrainian nationalism. Even though Ukrainian nationalist groups predate Brest-Litovsk by 100 years. During the Civil War, Ukraine will see fighting between white monarchists, red communists, and black anarchists, and Ukrainian nationalists jump at the opportunity to sow in their countrymen the idea that Ukraine is more than just the punching bag of Russia. And weirdly, this idea that the Ukrainian language and culture were not in fact parasitic aberrations of the superior Muscovite culture proved popular among the Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainian cultural people. With the Civil War coming to an end, the Bolsheviks suddenly found themselves in the uncomfortable position of dealing with a now-assertive national movement inside their pan-national communist movement, fueled by well-founded fears that the USSR was simply Imperial Russia 2.0. This led to a general appeasement of nationalism by the Soviet government. Despite the long-held position that Ukrainian nationalism did not exist, thousands of now armed Ukrainian revolutionaries disagreed, and though the communists came out on top, the Ukrainian communists had no interest in simply being absorbed back into Russia, as second-class little Russians. To appease these forces, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin instituted a policy of, um, air quotes, self-determination for the republics of the USSR. The policy was wholly self-serving, but it did involve appeasing Ukraine for the first time with the title of independent nation. Not that that would actually mean anything in reality, but for the first time Ukrainian nationalism gained some level of official support. So, to a degree, Putin and the ultra-nationalist line today that modern Ukraine was created by the communists is correct-ish? Putin presents it as an illegitimate social engineering move, splitting Russians from Russians, true to a degree but a wild misrepresentation of history and Ukrainian identity in general. Ukraine will remain a restive part of the Union until 1932, when a massive famine, now known as the Holodomor, kills between 3 and 10 million people, crippling the state. It is widely considered that Stalin's government either engineered this famine to pacify the region, or at the very least made it worse. The rest of the Stalin period will see heavy Russification of the region, the population of the Crimea will be wholly deported to make way for Russian settlers, and the Ukrainian East, the home of the nomadic Cossacks, will be devastated by purges and war, and eventually repopulated with Russian settlers. By complete coincidence, it is Crimea and the eastern regions of Donetsk and Luhansk which have recently been seized by the Russian Federation. The post-Stalin Soviet government will, after the whole, 
genocide thing, try a slightly gentler strategy, and in 1954 celebrated the union of Russia and Ukraine with nationwide parades and celebrations, for the first time acknowledging and celebrating Ukraine as its own entity and culture. The ascension of Khrushchev, an ethnic Ukrainian, to chairman of the Communist Party in 1956 created for the first time in nearly a thousand years a Ukrainian thaw that saw many Ukrainians joining the ranks of the Communist Party and the removal of historical restrictions on Ukrainian culture. However, after he was deposed in 1964, his successor Leonid Brezhnev oversaw a massive period of stagnation. Brezhnev championed a policy of creating a new Soviet identity comprised of all the various cultures of the Union, which in reality turned out to be a thinly veiled version of Russification. As generally happened in the USSR, as the early nationalists had feared, Soviet policies were generally just Russian Empire 2.0. Now with a hammer and sickle flag! What this all led to was that in August 1991, following the failed August coup, Ukraine's Communist Party tripped over itself to declare that Ukraine was in fact an independent nation, set up an independence referendum, and form a Ukrainian Home Guard to protect that independence. The referendum passed with 92% of the vote, and Ukraine would live happily ever after. Never to be bothered by the Russians again. What's that? Their president was mysteriously poisoned. A pro-Russian president was bankrolled by the Kremlin. A Russian invasion staged to look like a rebellion? Hmm. Okay then. Vladimir Putin is not wrong when he says that Ukraine does not have a history of statehood. But then neither did Russia before Ivan IV. And that does not mean that there is not a Ukrainian identity, or that they do not deserve or have not tried to form their own state. As I hope this episode has showed, Ukraine has a long culture, completely distinct and separate from that of Russia, and that the myth that a non-Russian identity within Ukraine was invented by foreigners or by communists is as old as Russian imperialism itself. The culture of Russian ultranationalism is, and has always been, deeply interwoven with a myth of the Kievan Rus, and therefore this foundation myth is heavily dependent on a rejection of any form of Ukrainian identity. I am going to end this episode with part of the speech given by Vladimir Putin, current president of the Russian Federation, on sending troops into Ukraine just two days ago as of recording. Quote, I would like to emphasize again that Ukraine is not just a neighboring country for us. It is an inalienable part of our own history, culture, and spiritual space. I could say a lot about this one sentence. Instead, I will end with a question. Why would three empires, through three centuries, put so much effort into trying to erase something which they all claimed did not exist? That is all we have time for today. Thank you for joining me. Feedback can be sent to historicalhysteria at gmail.com. And don't forget to check the socials r slash historicalhysteria on Reddit and at Manic History on Twitter. But before I leave, let me leave you with this. This episode aired February 23rd, 2022, exactly 567 years ago to the day on February 23rd, 1455, in the city of Mainz, Germany. Johannes Gutenberg nervously watches as his assistant assembles the typeface in his press that will produce the first printed Bible, the first mass-produced book in Europe. The introduction of the printing press would have tremendous impacts on society, creating our modern understanding of language, increasing literacy, and breaking ecclesiastical monopolies on information. 
As Gutenberg watched page after page being produced in a matter of seconds, do you suppose he looked out into the cold winter streets of Mainz and understood how completely his invention was going to change the world? Goodbye.